Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building comic stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Philip Kennedy Johnson, creator of such great works like Warlords of Appalachia and The Last Sons of America, along with many others. This is Matt, and I'm joined by Noah. Hey there. Hey, Philip, um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, why don't you uh, start us off with a little bit of uh, background on yourself and your comics? Sure, man. Well, hey, first, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's going to be super fun. Um, yeah, my first book was Last Sons of America. After that, I did other books at Boom. I did uh, Warlords of Appalachia, an Adventure Time story that eventually got an Eisner nom, which was cool. Um, let see, Power of the Dark Crystal, uh, Planet of the Apes story, Kong story. Um, since then, I've done some things at DC, uh, Marvel story, working at IDW has been really fun. Very cool. Very cool. And when did, uh, when did you sort of like your interest in writing comic scripts start? Like, where did that grow from? Oh man. I, um, I mean, I learned how to read from comics as a kid. I've loved them my whole life, but, uh, as far as writing, com I mean, I guess I wrote comics even then, but as far as like not screwing around writing them, I, um, honestly, when I went to, when I started college, I stopped reading comics really. I mean, I, I still had the interest, but the time just wasn't there. I, um, there was a time when I wanted to be a comic artist myself. Um, but when I got to college age, just found that I was just stronger at music than, than the art side. And that was my easiest way, you know, out, you know, to, to move on. So I uh, went to school for music and kind of sold my soul to the practice room and didn't really read a comic for a long time. Um, and then, Years later, I had a, you know, my music career started and I was living in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm in, I'm active duty army now. I play trumpet in one of the uh, military bands in D.C. And when I settled up here, my younger brother decided he wanted to be a comic artist as well. Oh, cool. And yeah, it's, yeah, it was really fun. So he also played trumpet in school, but he went the other way. So I got to, you know, you got to, I got to live vicariously through him and see how, you know, it would have gone <laughs> But he didn't really know much about the process. Like he liked to draw mm -hmm. and he had a bunch of like pinup type stuff, but he didn't have any pages of sequentials. He didn't know how comics were made. Um, he just was this really talented artist that lived out in the sticks. Um, and he didn't know what to do. So I actually found out that there were jobs in the army for illustrators. I was like, dude, there's, if, I mean, you don't know how to use any of this software that any that these guys use like we started to educate ourselves on how comics were made and found okay the whole comic industry uses you know photoshop or illustrator and i mean even if it's just coloring everyone uses a computer to some degree um like let's you know teach you how to use this stuff and even that he, he just didn't kind of didn't really know how to get started and we're like well hey let's you can get the gi bill and go to college and like train up as an art go to art school mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what we ended up doing. So he lived with me for a while and we just kind of educated ourselves on how to make comics and I mean, how they're written, how the whole process works. Started going to conventions together, made some short comics together. I started figuring out how, how scripts were made, what they look like. Um, and he started making pages of sequentials and it was, it was just a really fun time. And so that, that's how the whole thing kind of started. It was all the whole thing, like him joining the army and me getting into the comics industry. This was all like, our part of our master plan to get him into the biz and for us to just make books together. That's very, awesome. Very cool. And yeah. one of the books you guys did together, the one that um, the, 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 the publisher who writes the forward in last sons, was that one of the comics that they saw that got sent? Oh. No, actually that was, that was different. That was, that was a little bit later. That was Ron Mars, right? Ron wrote the forward to last sons. Yeah. Ron, yep. Yeah. That was, that was a different story. Yep. Um, the, one of the things that Ron saw, okay, so backtrack a little more. My brother and I did a couple of short stories together. This, this, this thing called The Well, which is basically just like a creepy little poem that I wrote that was, you know, written with a comic in mind. And then he, he did the art for that. I think it was like 10 pages. And then we did, well, actually, no, our first thing was like a, a present, like a gift for our sister when she turned 18 and graduated in high school. And then the next thing was The Well. And we, we, um, and then we were starting to look at doing short stories to put into anthologies and he was getting busy. He got into, he got into the army. He did six years in the army. And while he was in, he was kind of getting busy and 
I was like, if you're cool, I'm going to look for other artists to work with. And uh, he said it was cool to do that. So I found, I started uh, writing more long form stuff. And the first one I actually did was called, this book called The Lazarus Slaves, which was going to be a, a retelling of Macbeth set in the American Civil War. Nice. But with more emphasis on the, the creepy supernatural elements. Like Macbeth was this um, like dark ass Confederate general cool. uh, named George Washington Barlow. And he ends up raising an army of undead slaves. And it was this big thing. Um, and I found um, somehow I met Scott Hampton who had done some big stuff at DC back in the day. He created the character Simon Dark and has this really awesome hand painted creepy style. And he liked the story and we did a big pitch for it. And that was the thing that Ron first saw that made him realize, Oh wow, this guy is not messing around. Like these are real comic pages. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean just investing the money to pay Scott to do the art, but also like learning how to make a script that he would take seriously. Those were kind of the, that was like the one, two punch or like, well that, and also going to conventions and making the, the networking connections and just eventually getting in front of Scott. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it worked out. And then, so Ron found that and then he introduced me to more people and networking continued. And eventually one of the pitches that I put together got noticed at boom. And that was last sons. Awesome. So for last sons, was that something that was like, uh, an idea that was, uh, forming for, for a long time or was it something that was, uh, put together, um, when you had the opportunity to present, uh, something to boom? Um, no, I had it put together by the time I, like Ron introduced me to Philip Sablik, mm -hmm. um, who was at the time VP of uh, marketing and publishing, I think. Um, he, let's see, by that time I had three pitches put together. It was Lazarus Slaves, one I just described, and which I was super hot to make that one. I really, I still really like that story. Um, Last Sons of America, who um, I'd made with Matthew Dow Smith who lives in DC um, and another one. So I had, a, I had all these kind of ready to go already. I'd already invested some money in getting, you know, artists to, to make these things. Mm -hmm. I had them all on a Kindle and I would just take them to conventions and show them off because no one wants to walk out of there with a big stack of paper. You know, like I, I could um, just hand out my paper pitches, but there are people are hesitant to take it. But if we just talk, I found it easier to show off what I had. If I could just like show them my thing and then, run away with it and maybe give them a, give them a business card or something and follow up. And that's, I found that was a better way to network. Um, so yeah, that's how that worked out. I just had, I showed him like, Hey, here's the things that I have Ron, And Philip will tell you to this day, like when Ron was like, Hey, I got this kid who's never done shit. He's really good. And you gotta, you gotta look at his stuff. Philip was like, screw you, Ron. Like, I can't believe you're putting me like, I'm in a bar. Like, I can't believe you're doing this to me right now. Um, but it totally worked out, man. Yeah, exactly. And was that at was that at San Diego? It was. Okay, cool. Oh, you asked me if that was if I'd thought about the story for a long time. It was God, I yeah, like there was um the idea kind of percolated out of several different things that were kinda of happening in my life. For one thing, my you know, my relationship with my own brother. Mm His -hmm. last sons is about two brothers. Like that's the the heart of the whole thing, is these two brothers that like together kind of make one person. Mm -hmm. Um but also just uh, infertility issues that, that um, my family had gone through and um, facing the reality that I probably would not have a kid. Um, and then also around that time, like around 2010, there was this huge earthquake in Haiti. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was like oh, this yeah. big deal. Um, so the earthquake happened and it created this huge humanitarian crisis in which a lot of families were separated and like people died, of course, but other people that were, that did not, that, you know, in which no one had died, still couldn't find each other because they, they just lacked the infrastructure down there. Um, and this group of missionaries from the U.S. had traveled down there to to rescue, like, orphans. And they tried to smuggle a bunch of kids out of the country, but they were not orphans. They had families still. Um, and I kind of, at that time, I was doing a lot of anti-human trafficking work up in Baltimore, and I just kind of started educating myself on the for-profit adoption industry and the problems with it and um, this was really kind of horrified and fascinated with what I found and all these ideas together kind of came together 
and just I kind of imagined a world in which Americans couldn't have kids anymore. And what if human trafficking became the only way that we could have families here? Um, and that's kind of followed that to its end point and made last sons. What I found was interesting with how you open the book is it's, it's the main character explaining the world to the, the parents that he's trying to basically go for a child off of. It's a very, and it makes sense why he's delivering this huge exposition about where the world is, what's going on, because this is technically in like a third world country where he's explaining this to these people. And it doesn't feel unnatural, the exposition dialogue. And it reminded me of um, the Steven Spielberg's adaptation of Minority Report. So I found both of them being very similar in like how you develop the world very naturally through introducing characters that may come and go off screen, but you have to are off page that, you know, don't know anything about the current situation. So you can explain the world in that way. And in order to do that in four issues, that's a big deal like to flesh out this world so that like where I was reading it, I didn't want to leave the world by the end of it because I was like, this is a really cool place to be. And I want to see what other stories unfold here. Uh, what was your writing process like with that, with like the four issue limit and um, just with like what story you wanted to tell? <clears throat> um, yeah, actually I think the story started as five or six issues. Okay. And in the end, we kind of pared it down to four, and I was like, "Oh man, this is going to be tough." I don't, I don't even remember what we cut to get there, but it was the the basic flow of it was still what it became. Like we just got a little more of the journey to get to to get out of the country. You know, is all is all that we really lost. But yeah, I, I wanted. I know I knew that I wanted every issue to um, slowly get bigger. You know, like I wanted the, the first the first issue was just about this little town, these two guys, and then each issue shows a bigger part of their world. Like if you, I don't know if you remember the Merc, the, yeah. which is short for Mercado. That was a big stage that you had to see. You had to see um, uh, Don Carlos place and all that. I wanted to see even more of the country, but um, yeah, it was important for every, for the camera to pull back in every issue, you know, mm-hmm. and we found that four issues was enough to do that. Um, plus that on it, honestly kind of lends itself well to, um, I mean, Boom. Okay, Boom is obviously out to make good comics first, but a big part of their model is um, Fox's investment in them. Like they, Fox is always looking for film and TV from from Boom. Um, never, they found that they like Boom sensibilities, like story sensibilities, and um, Boom is mindful of that. And the uh, the four issue mini lends itself well to three act structure yeah okay. i can see um because yeah. like the, as far as length the the first act is typically about 25 percent of the length second act is roughly half and then the third act is about 25 percent again this is obviously hugely general but um by the I, end of the first issue i'm sorry what oh sorry i was saying the inciting incident is at the end of the first issue so exactly yeah the end of the first issue is when you see that photograph of the kid spoilers yeah. for anyone who's listening yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and that's that's when everything really gets moving, you know, at that point. And, you know, at the end of the third issue is when they're pretty well screwed. Yes. <laughs> and then you've yeah. got one one more issue to really kind of wrap it up. So it's it worked in the three issue in the three act structure extremely well. Um which I think awesome is about the whole thing, which is awesome. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, I'm very proud of that book. So I, I have a another sort of process question. Um when you create a world that's got all of these sort of like high level like concepts like uh, you know the infertility in America, um, you know uh, how do you balance not going too much into those high concepts and still doing like the character development? Because like uh, you know I, I would think of like a lot of writers would get caught up on like look at how cool this world is that I made. Look at all the things that are happening. Um, but you, you did a good job of doing that and still like giving us that, that the, you know, the character arcs, the character development. So how do you, how do you balance those? Honestly, it's like, it's through revision for me. Like the, my first drafts always suck always. <laughs> and, um, I just, I embrace that and I, I just write everything down <clears throat> and then knowing where I want the story to go, I'll, I'll go back and read it again and be like, okay. 
what things are missing, like what's wrong with this. And um, if I feel like it's not, okay, well, the central aspect of the story, these two brothers, um, one of them is physically, you know, capable and good looking um, and is, you know, charismatic, but he's kind of a douche, right? Mm-hmm. And um, his brother is the moral compass and is more capable, you know, intellectually. Like he, he speaks the language down there. He's, you know, he thinks around corners. He's just a kind of a better person and smarter. Um, but he's physically not disabled, but he's definitely limited in what he can do. Um, he's not just short. He's got like, like one of his arms is, you know, not fully formed and there he has physical problems. Um, and in the story, they're separated. And when they're separated, they start to inherit more of the other brother's characteristics. Like they become more whole on their own. Like they both kind of become, it's like this, like a, you know, a starfish has been chopped up and then like kind of grows again. Um, and I really wanted to see that process. I wanted them to, to be separated, to become more whole on their own and then come together again and become more, you know, more complete. And that was at the center of the story for sure. Um, but like you say, there, there are world building elements that you've got to show and you just find sneaky little ways. Like after I go back and I read an issue, I'll be like, okay, here, like, how do I show what's happening? Like, uh, God, what's an example? Uh, like the, in the Merc, okay, it's, it's this big market where people buy kids. Um, things that we wanted to seed in there. I, I put in there, a, there's a line. There was a, a, a series of three lines where the kids are lined up to be, uh, you know, shown off to potential buyers and they're separated by skin color. Mm-hmm. not by age or gender or anything else. Um, that was something that was important to me. I wanted them to see like the, you know, the ones who look the most white are the most valuable mm-hmm. without actually saying that I wanted to show it, you know, um, there are other things like the, uh, the said tabs, the little red dots that they use to um, like, it's a sedative, like it works super quick. That's a little hint that, okay, we're in the future, even though we're in this third world crappy place. Um, this is a hint that is an alternate reality, like near future where we still see, you know, beat up cars and crappy little phones, um, and clothes are the same, but there's this little bit of tech that we don't have, you know? So, um, what's another thing? There's um, a brilliant aspect that you have in there and that's the language barrier between Sarah. Oh, that's her name, right? Sarah's little girl. Yeah. 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 Sarah and Jackie have this language barrier. So the, what's driving, we know that there's something that Sarah knows that's driving the plot forward, but we don't know what it is until the last issue, which keeps the plot going forward. But you have this great time to integrate the world building and the character building in between that because you don't have the plot getting in the way of those things. So you can right. build the character, you can build, you can build uh, the world without having to worry about the, the plot getting in the way, basically. It's a very brilliant touch. I really like that. And um, I love that Thanks. communicating via Star Wars lines, of course. Um, just brought yeah. face in every, every line of dialogue with that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was, it was a fun way to give them an opportunity to bond, you know, because like yeah. it's, you know, he, uh, he doesn't like kids. He's not interested in getting to know this kid. He's prepared to like kidnap this child. And um, through the Star Wars things, we get a clearer picture of both of these people. Yeah. See, you know, she likes, she's kind of a tomboy. She's, she's fun and funny the way she messes with that lady on the bus. And then we see that she's quoting Star Wars at first. It's just a fun way to like mislead. You get this moment of, uh, what does she say? Like it's a trap or something, it's right? Trap, yep. And he's like, Oh Jesus, what do you mean? Like, and he freaks out. Then you realize, Oh, this is all she can say. Um, and it's just, um, yeah, it was, you have, you look for those moments where, okay, how do I develop character? And also, you know, show a bigger picture of this world. You just find little opportunities to, to work in little details uh, that make it feel more real. And we all have emotional memories attached to Star Wars, anyone who's ever seen it. So a fast way to my heart is to quote original trilogy Star Wars lines, even prequel trilogy Star Wars lines. So yeah. quick way to my heart as a reader. Oh, good. Yeah, it's, um, I remember there was, there was some how-to book on comics. I can't remember which one it was because I read a ton all kind of quick. Um, it might've been Andy Schmitz. He has a good one. 
But um, anyway, there was one where, like, let's say there's a scene, you know, you've got a scene where um, Superman approach, like, confronts Batman in the Batcave. And by the end, like, at the beginning of, this, of the scene, Batman's like, it's hopeless. And at the end of the scene, you need Batman to be like, I've got my, you know, got my mojo back. Let's go do this thing. You can't just get there for no reason. Like you've got a, <clears throat> it can be a very boring scene. It can be like a little stupid little pep talk. Superman. Or you can work in some really cool detail. Um, you can find a way to make it even more rises and falls. Like say there's some thing that Superman can give him that's meaningful from an earlier part of the script that you'd have to then add in or add some other dramatic thing where give them a reason to butt heads in some way, like maybe even physically. You have, you have to find some way to make those scene more interesting. And if you can do that and also, you know, if you can detail the plot and also show more of who they are together, that's a big win. So I'm, I'm always looking for ways to, to do both if I can. And the, the Star Wars lines, was that just something from you and your brother? Because I know my older brother introduced me to Star Wars and stuff like that. Is that sort of a, a bond you guys shared? Uh, not really i mean we we definitely yeah. both like star wars yeah. um um although he's he's been whining and crying about the new ones but oh go uh, to bed that's all yeah. I <laughs> yeah. star wars get over it yeah totally um no he's on in his defense he's just a huge cinephile it's constantly like ripping apart movies he just like he knows a lot about film and loves film and he's just very critical of movies in general but um Anyway, the Star Wars thing, I was just, I wanted, I knew that I didn't want her to be able to speak English. It just felt fake for her to be able to just talk to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and especially with her scenes with Jackie. So I, I was trying to think of some way that they could communicate in a really broken way. And um, I just went around and around about it. And finally, I just kind of settled on Star Wars. I think it's, I can't remember how, but I, uh, there was a guy I went to basic training with who spoke pretty okay English, like much better than the kid in the book. Like it's, he could totally get by. Um, he never had a lesson in, in English at all. He just, the only introduction to English he ever had was that his, he, uh, they had HBO in his house. <laughs> no, that was it. I was like, how did you, like, he's from Puerto Rico. And like no one he knew even spoke, spoke English. And I was like, how'd you speak English so well? And he's like, it's not TV, it's HBO. <laughs> and that became like a catchphrase that he would occasionally throw out in random moments. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, and that just kind of stuck with me. Um, yeah, so I mean, everyone knows Star Wars, right? So it just kind of made sense that, that they would know Star Wars. Yeah. So um, I have another sort of uh, writing craft uh, question. Um, the, at one point in the book, um, the girl is handed a knife, which she uses to, um, to escape. Uh -huh. um, did you, when you wrote that, did you, uh, did you have that planned out or did you go back and say, um, you know, did you get to the point where she was making the escape and you're like, Oh, I need her to have something to do the escape and then go back like a couple panels, a couple pages and introduce the knife. Or was that sort of plan? I'm just thinking like, like a, like a sort of like a check off gun sort of check like uh, scenario. Like did one yeah, I, other I, backwards. Yeah. She needed, she needed a plausible way to escape. And um, I can't remember at what point, I decided to give her the knife, but yeah, whenever I did, I'm sure the knife thing, I remember, I remember the, the, there was a, I think I may have already had the scene in the Merc where the, the guy tries to, you know, the guy's messing with her. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't have her actually having the knife at the end of that exchange. So later when I had to, you know, give her a way out that didn't seem really fake, eventually I thought of this knife thing and then I had to go back and find a way for her to have it. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was definitely, and I, I do that all the time. Like I, I never just start from the beginning and go to the end, like ever. It's always, you know, back and forth. It's like, it's, it grows, it's like it becomes this, this document that a little chunk of it will grow like down here. And then that affects something that happens earlier. Like it all grows kind of out organically. It's never like page one to page last ever for me. Yeah. It's, it's a great story. 
very well crafted and very utilitarian for the four issues that you have. Thank you, man. Yeah. And uh, so after Last Sons, were you at a position where you could pitch stories and that's where Warlords came up or was that one you pitched with Last Sons? No, that was, that one was not on my radar until later. I, um, Last Sons, I had that one. I already had like two and a half issues done. I think by the time I had the, wow. the pitch ready to show. Um, and I could have written the whole thing. I just hadn't got around to it cause there was no reason yet. Um, so I, plus I wasn't sure how long it was going to be or any of that. So this wasn't a reason I, for Lazarus slaves. I think I mentioned earlier, yeah. that's a, that's the six issue, six issue story. That's already like, I've got it right now, the entire thing. Um, and we, I got Scott to draw like, I think 10 or 11 pages of it, like two separate scenes. And that's all there is. And maybe all there ever will be. I hope, I still hope to make that book. I hope but, you do. That sounds kick-ass. So, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Like balls to the wall. Awesome. Thank so. you. I'm very proud of it. But right now, it's, I wrote six issues for you know kind of no reason. Um, and I honestly, I think I could do better now too. Um, like I would definitely go back and completely do the whole thing over again. Um, but anyway, that aside, I didn't see the point in writing the entire Last Sons again. But anyway, so Warlords. I, sometimes I would just think of a neat little idea and just jot it down somewhere and flesh it out into an, a paragraph or two. Think of a cool title and just kind of occasionally add to it now and again, but never really take it anywhere. So by the time Last Sons was up and running, um, I met like that fall, like right around the time the first issue came out, I met my editor for the first time, Eric Harburn at New York Comic Con. I was there and he was there and he has met him at a bar and hung out with him in, in person for the first time. Because until then I'd been out here in the, on the East Coast and Eric was in LA where Boom is. And um, he's like, we, he and I had a, an awesome time working together. Um, he, he had, we had very similar story sensibilities. The notes were always good ones and never anything I disagreed with. It was all just super easy and great. So he was like, let's do something else, man. What do you want to do next? And, and then like the first, for the first book, the thing is the first book is <laughs> so much harder than it. Like every book you do after that, because no one's got any reason to believe that you're anything valuable. You know, like there's just, there's so many guys out there that want to do this men and women, both of course. Um, it's uh yeah, it's just such a hard, I mean, as you guys know, like there's, you have to prove it, you know, you have to show the industry that you don't need them to make comics. You need to show them, look, I can do this by myself. And when you do that, if, if you know, the an editor reads it and likes it, then like, oh, wow. Okay, cool. This is going to be easy. And then calls the person like, Hey, you should do this with us. Um, but that, so that first one's hard after that though, I didn't have to like, so in the first book I had to have an artist and I had to have all colored and lettered and finished and look professional. But after that first one, when they know you can write um, and you, you know, they, you see, they see that you're in it for the love of the game, then you can just pitch ideas. And depending on the publisher, they will help you find an art team or just straight up find it for you. So um, like for Warlords, um, I didn't, I'm not the one who found Jonas. Uh, Eric found him. He's like, hey, here's this guy. What do you think of him? I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm sold as hell. Like, yeah, Jonas is awesome. I think there were a couple other guys in the stack too. And, and I'm sure they were all great, but I don't even remember them anymore. Cause Jonas just killed it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that was just a great relationship. So I didn't find you. I can't take credit for Jonas. It was the same colorist, Doug Garbark, the colorist from um, last sons also colored warlords, although you wouldn't know it. Um, the same thing with Jim Campbell lettered both. It was the same exact art teams except for the penciler. Yeah, and beautiful. Yeah, your colorist. Yeah, he really worked well with Matthew and then again with Jonas. Um, both worlds are very different, very textured in their own ways that fits with the style. That's yeah, yeah. Doug has this way of like, his palettes aren't like, I don't know, harsh is too strong a word, but it's just it's kind of like stark, I guess, that, yeah. that fit fit both um, both worlds very well, I thought. Yeah, definitely. And with Warlords, you got to add in some of your own uh, music background with that, right? You wrote, did you write all the songs in the back of each issue? I did. Yeah, I know some of those say anonymous, but that's all bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> like I wanted, I wanted them to, to look, you know, like we just like 
found these songs yeah. um, or I would, or I would give like the, the author is like a, the composer is like private so-and-so or whatever, like a, like a, you know, a soldier. Um, yeah. I wrote all the songs. We actually recorded the first one. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. The first one is a, we, we made a trailer for the first issue when it first came out. Oh. Um, and I'm, you know, my day job is music. And so I, I just found some musician friends and we recorded the first song. Um, what's it called? Uh, Where have you gone? Joyful Valley of old. Yes. Um, if you, if you YouTube look up uh Warlords of Appalachia on YouTube, that trailer comes up and you can hear that song sung and played on like mandolin and, um, See, I don't think I don't think we ended up doing fiddle. Like we had like mandolin, bass, maybe guitar or something, and a friend of mine sang it. So yeah, it was fun. They're all like kind of bluegrassy, just kind of you know mountain folk songs. Yeah, fits with the story, fits with the setting. Yeah, and the the lyrics kind of give these little uh, hints about the backstory too. Yep, yep, I love that. Love that that it fleshed out the world as well. Good way to utilize the back and the front cover into your story. Yeah, exactly. The the yeah. singles actually have more stuff that, that didn't make it into the trade. And the uh, the front inside cover, I think, had um, little snippets of um, political speeches or or um, gospel. Like I think there's something from the Gospel of Luther in one of them, maybe. Gospel of Luther, the book of Luther is like the, the Bible that the Waterborne use. Um, there were some things like that that, again, give little pieces. For people who are into it, they could find more world building in, the, in that. Yeah, I loved reading them in single issues. They're like, it's such a great story. I, I think I have like multiple copies of the first issue or something. Oh, like thanks, that. dude. So I, can, I can look and pull it out because I love Jonas's artwork and I loved your story in that book, especially issue two. When you introduce the uh, the Spec Ops cyborg team, yeah, which are just like I love how like you set them up like from the beginning, like these guys are like cybernetic badasses, right? But like in like the most like silent running badass of them all, like goes forward, and everybody's like, "Where the heck did he go?" And then they find him dead in the shower because the hero is even bigger badass than the cybernetic badasses. So I was like. Like, this is my kind of story right here when I got to that second issue. I mean, first issue ending with him driving a tank down the mountain towards the town was also pretty awesome. <laughs> but, like, second issue, that, that page with just the guy dead with, like, an arrow shoved in his head, I was like, that's a cool page turn reveal. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. So, yeah. yeah, God, I love that character, and I cannot wait to do more of that book. Like, yeah. if, uh, if fans demand it. I mean, I'm sure we'd love to, I mean, I talked to Jonas since then. He would love to do it. Um, if the numbers don't justify it, then, you know, someday the rights will be revert back to us and we'll do it ourselves. Cause I really want to do more in that world. It was a very important story to me, especially then. Um, as a member of the active duty military, I can't really, you know, air political grievances. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not allowed to like talk politics and be like, eh, it's like, here's what I think about this, this public official what I can do is write comic books with fictional characters. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and um, yeah. so that, that the book was very important to me. And <clears throat> um, yeah, I'd love to love to do more. Yeah. It's a, it's a great world. Same with last sons. It's a, it was one that I like, I loved all four issues of it, but I was like, oh, I could go for like another eight or two or like, you know, however long it could go. Yeah. Um, that the next, that next arc was going to be super killer. And I still, I still have it and I'm ready to do it and um, I, I will do it someday. Awesome. And it's gotta be with Jonas. I can't imagine doing a book with anyone but him. Jonas is so great. Um, love his work on, I was interested in his work on his warlords of, uh, sorry, his war for the planet of the apes. <laughs> yeah. When I saw that, I'm like, shit, like he's better. Like he's getting better. Yeah. He was like, and that, like, you know, normally when you have a, a movie I in book, they don't hire like, you know, the best teams do that you know it's normally like not like you can tell like when you read them and you know you, it's like it's not the biggest priority on anybody's list they're just trying to move comics to you know to get into the movies but like that book i saw the art in that and i was like holy crap this is a guy who really cares about what he does and he puts so much love into each any, any <laughs> he's gonna go far especially with his uh, his marvel issue recently uh his uh halloween special they did last year i was like yeah he's gonna he's going places Really yeah, good. totally. He's killing it on Bone Parish. Yeah, uh, he's uh, yeah, he's doing a great job. Yeah, love his artwork. 
Okay. So I, um, I have another sort of uh, craft and like time management question, and this might be a little selfish on my part, but um, how do you, how do you manage, um, you know, holding down a day job, having family commitments and also doing a, uh, you know, doing creative work uh, on, on the side? Man, it's, that's my biggest challenge for sure. I think it's, I'm not sure I have the key to this. <laughs> I, uh, I'm struggling as much as anyone would. Um, time management remains my biggest challenge. When I'm not making comics, I'm still a dad and a soldier and a musician. And I take all those responsibilities seriously. And I'm, like, I, I don't have the time for it, but I, you know, I'm not willing to give any of those things up. So um, most days I have the responsibilities of nearly two days crammed into it. And um, at some point you got to decide what's going to get dropped. Yeah. Um, so it's just, you do your best and you uh, mostly you take the, you take time out of your, your sleep time or you find ways to um, multitask as best you can. The things that really suffer are the things that I, I kind of need to, to be good at my, to be good at my writing. That's like watching movies and shows and those kind of things. Like you've got to take in good culture to make it right. Yeah. And um, that's been tough for a while. And so I, I've started loading up my, my Kindle with, you know, Netflix shows and just like watching stuff like this is going to sound super messed up, but like in the bathroom or like in the, in the line, the pharmacy or, you know, on our, you know, 15 minute break at rehearsal or whatever, like whenever I have just a couple of minutes, um, I'll just try to watch a little bit of a show or I'll, um, you know, send emails every opportunity. I'll like the little things that got to get, they got to get fit in like for rehearsal. I've got to be, you know, in the room, in the chair with my horn focused, you know, I can't multitask then when I'm writing, same thing, like the Wi-Fi goes off, door shuts, you know, the timer sets and I just, I don't do anything else while I'm doing that stuff. Um, when I'm with my son, the same thing, like I, you know, phone goes away for, you know, while we're doing what we're doing. Uh, but then when I have this other kind of like gray time where I could potentially be doing two things, <laughs> Um, I take every opportunity to do two things. Like I'll, you know, listen to a, like when I'm driving, I'll listen to a podcast from about a valuable topic, something that I hope will make me better at something that, you know, something I need to know, you know, mm -hmm. like whether it's books that are coming out that day or, um, information about a great creator, like a bio, like I'll, sometimes I'll put it on YouTube while I'm driving, not watch it, but like set it in the seat next to me and listen like about like a, you know, documentary about a great comic guy whose work I'm, you know, ripping off. <laughs> um, I just do whatever I can to, to make every minute count. You just can't waste a minute, you know? So that's, I that's how, I, that's how I'm making it. I, like I'm just spending every minute that I can um, multitasking or um, yeah, just not wasting a second. I mean, I've been, I've been in the army for a little while and soon I'll be coming up to a point where I'll have to reassess how best to continue. Like I can't do this forever. Hmm. Um, but I still, I find my army job very rewarding still. I'm not ready to give it up and I really like the benefits that it offers my kid. And, um, but at some point I'll have to reassess, okay, so how much money am I making here versus there? Like, how am I, am I still giving my best work both places? Is my son getting enough of me? Then I'll figure out what to do next. But yeah. If I, if, if this question is meant to like offer advice to someone else trying to do the same thing, I guess that's what I would say. Just like find like make a list of everything you need to do. Um, even if it's, even if you know it's way too much, mm -hmm. uh, like here's my list for the day. There's no way I'm going to get through it all. Find ways to pair them up um, where you can get, like you're not willing to let your kid down. You're not, you're not willing to suck at either of your jobs. You're not willing to, you know, whatever. And then find like ways to nickel and dime your day where you can just find, you know, these five minutes that you think you're spending that you're actually kind of wasting and then make the most of those minutes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you have a time of day where you seem to have uh, like uh, more motivation? Um, are you like an early morning person? Are you like a, a night owl? Um, I'm a night owl. I, I have a lot of admiration for morning people, but I'm just not wired that way. Um, I, whenever I wake up, I'm just so unbelievably tired. Like I'm not the same person and I, I can't, I know that I can't get out of bed until I really truly have to. <laughs> so I, I'll, um, I'll set out my, you know, my clothes and food and whatever I can the night before. So I can just like 
pop up, grab everything, get out the door and be squared away. Cause I'll, I'll, you know, I can set the alarm till I'm blue in the face or 10 alarms and every single, like it's zombie Philip is the one that, that hears the alarm and turns it off. <laughs> so I've learned enough about myself to know that's not going to happen. So I'll, uh, when I'm actually awake and have to be awake, that's when things start to happen. Then I'll be like, okay, now like, here's all the crap I've got to do today. I know there's no way I can do it. So how do I make it happen anyway? Um, and then that panic is kind of my motivation. <laughs> um, so I'll listen to something like, what do I, what can I do in the car? Like, what can I do at break? How long do I have to eat? How long is it going to take me to eat it? Um, you know, and then I'll, I'll cram in everything else at the end of the day, super late at night. Like once my son's in bed, um, then I'll, then it's like prime time productive. Like that's when I really can buckle down and, and work my butt off. Very cool. That is very cool. And so it's like, as far as like the culture that you take in, this sort of leads into like um, influences for you. Like what are your biggest influences on like your story writing? Cause I get like, I get with like warlords, there's a lot of cool, like almost like commando style eighties action films, like total recall and like, commando, I guess thrown in there. And then like with last sons, like there is sort of like, it almost feels like, um, Philip K. Dick story, like, you know, like a very high concept uh, thing mixed with like a, like an on the road thriller, like, um, I don't know, something like No Country for Old Men or something like that, you know, like Barry Cormac McCarthy kind mm -hmm. of like grittiness. So like, what are your influences um, for writing stuff? Well, it's funny you should ask that. Cormac McCarthy is definitely a huge influence. Like yeah. I, I love that guy. Yeah. He's dark as hell though, man. He's not for everything. Like I can't, I can't use him. I can't use his influence for everything. Yes. Um, and actually a, a prime, one of my biggest influences for last sons was Elmore Leonard. Okay. Um, his crime writing is so, awesome. well, I, you know, it doesn't even matter what the books are. It's his dialogue that I love. Um, just the way they talk, people talk to each other. is just so cool. Just so effortlessly cool. Like stuff like, um, you know, uh, get shorty. Yeah. You know, like I just love the way those characters talk. Um, uh, the, the care, the, um, the stories that ended up becoming the justified show, like the way those characters talk to each other. Like I, I love the banter and the, yeah, you're right that the concept of last sons is, is very dark and, um, is very Cormac McCarthy on the face of it with kind of a Philip K. Dick element. But, um, that banter was super important to keep the, to prevent it from being suicide inducingly dark. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could have gone that route with like certain parts, like you're talking about with the Merc and stuff like that. I'm like, please bring in some star Wars quotes. In <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, yeah. You really, you really need that. Um, so, so I, that was really important to me. And then I kind of, the way I broke it up in the next one with Warlords was like I a lot of those characters like that's that's a very Kentucky book and I grew yeah. up in in part in Kentucky and I, there are a lot of characters in that book that are like people I know and I, I really wanted to show the um, you know the religious aspect of that place and like the the honor that some people have and also you know also the ignorance in in some people and in some scenarios um, the uh, the blue boys, the blue boys um, are, are kind of a conglomeration of ideas. Like there's, there was an actual place where some of the people had this weird condition where their skin was blue. Right. Um, but it's also kind of a dig at uh, UK basketball fans. <laughs> 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 and uh, exploration of the meth issue that's down there. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is, this is like my love letter to Kentucky with all of its warts, you know, like there, there's people there that I love more than anyone, you know, but there's also problems. Um, as far as writing influences, um, a lot of the influences are book to book. Um, like if I'm writing a license thing, I'll, I'll, I'll just take in a ton of a certain author, um, depending on what the, um, what the book is. As far as comics, I love Rick Remender. Yeah. Um, I just, he's one of the best brew is another one where I can, I mean, as far as crime stories, man, that guy is just so on point all the time. Greg Ruck is great. Um, 
when you're doing a, a group book, like with a lot of characters, Bendis is awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, I haven't done a lot of like superhero team stuff yet, but it's, and it did not be, but even just the way that he managed to flesh out characters, like a bunch of characters all at once, you never feel like you're not getting enough of someone. Like everyone's getting a little piece of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So Bendis is like always great. Plus I love his power book, like the, the his dialogue again, like kind of like Leonard, but in a very different way, his dialogue is always super fun. Yeah. Um, uh, Scott Snyder, like, like the, I feel like I'm just giving you all these huge names. There's no one like obscure. We agree. With interesting you. on my list. <laughs> oh yeah. But I, I stand, I know all these guys are super, like superstars, but I honestly, I think they all deserve it. Um, yeah. uh, Tom King is killing it right now. I will say like Tom King was an acquired taste for me ex- with the exception of Sheriff of Babylon, which I always loved. Um, I always thought of Tom's writing as very, I guess it's beautiful, beautiful writing, but it's not necessarily always visual. Like it's not a visual. He doesn't, um, I didn't used to think that his style applied to comics as well as it might. Um, but I loved his writing so much. I, I overlooked it, but there have been, I've seen a lot of comics of his since then in which I've, I've, I've walked that opinion back like these, uh, he's doing some really great work and it's been really interesting to see how to see him just do such a ballsy take on the comics medium. You know, it's just, it's not, um, he's kind of does, he gets away with a lot of crazy stuff and it always turns out great. And he's, yeah. he's really doing some good work. Yeah, I was just reading his like early Grayson stuff and you can see his like on the, on the books that he did the script for, not Tim Seeley, mm-hmm. like you can see his style coming out and him being more bold with like making sort of like more, you're talking about those like upending choices and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Pretty cool to see. Yeah. I did not feel that way. Like when I was, for, when I was forming my opinion about Tom I was like, yeah, it's not very visual. I did not feel that way in Grayson at all. Like, I thought that was really great. I, um, there was a, this is awesome scene on, I think it was on top of a train and like there was somebody throws yeah. a baton or something. And I remember it being like, wow, that's such a creative way to use this layout. Yeah. That's um, the first issue. Michael Janine, I think. Yeah. 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 It's a killer book. Yeah. But yeah, Snyder's Snyder's Batman was a huge influence. I love this. I love Snyder's approach of summing up the book on the first page. Yeah. And then at the end, it comes back there. There's like this theme of the issue, not obviously of the whole run as well, mm-hmm. but he also like a, a single issue is also a standalone thing where like at the very beginning, there's like a, it's almost like a mission statement at the very beginning of that issue. And at the end, it pays that off. And uh, the whole thing in between is it's like a jazz solo where it starts with like a little kernel of an idea and it gets, it's, it spins away from that. And then it kind of comes back to that same idea at the very end. And I love that cohesion. Yeah. You would know you're the jazz man. So yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think uh, most people have probably seen it, but there's uh, been a lot of uh, news in the last couple of months about uh, last son's uh going to going to netflix um could you talk a little bit about like uh a little bit of like the behind the scenes like how you learned that maybe there was a bit of an interest on their side and how they communicated all that to you how they let me know that the that the movie was happening yeah um <laughs> so matthew okay matt dow smith is the artist he basically drew Dinklage into the book, right? <laughs> yeah. I was very surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. In the, in the beginning, he looked even more like him. I was like, okay, like, we're going to get sued. <laughs> like, we need, let's take a, let's take a step back. And it, it get altered a little bit, but it's still basically Dinklage. And um, so I was on tour with my band. And for, I mean, they, they made it clear from the beginning that they thought I had a good chance of being optioned. Um, okay. Just from it's a good, it's a, it's a cinematic kind of story. It just lends itself well to that kind of thing. Definitely. <clears throat> um, and when it finally started coming together, he, um, uh, let's see, Stephen Christie, who's the uh, president of film TV development over there, he called me. And he was like, "So guess what? I just got off the phone with." And I was like, "Dude, I've got no idea." I was like, "Just guess." Like, "Dude, I'm telling you, I just just tell me." He's like. Peter Dinklage. <laughs> like, I just laughed my butt off. Like, are you kidding me? And he's like, no, he's, he's read it and he likes it. He wants to do it. I'm like, Oh wow. Okay. I mean, what am I going to say to that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Dinklage was interested and um, 
if I remember this right, from there it went to um, Matt Reeves's production company. Matt Reeves being the director of the recent Apes films, yeah. and um, he has a production company. And at the time, I think he had a I think he had a first look deal at Fox, if I remember right. I, maybe I'm making that up. I thought he had a thing at Fox there, but not long after that, he ended up having a first look deal at Netflix. Um, so Dinklage was attached to produce and star. Reeves was attached to produce and they found like step by step. Then they got like, once they had Matt Reeves, eventually they got Josh Mond to direct and adapt the, the screenplay. Uh, Josh Reeves is a very, uh, excuse me, Josh Mond is a very sought after indie director. He made this really kick ass and also super dark movie called James White. Um, nice. Man, it's good. And he's, he's, he's a great artist. So anyway, he's attached and um, Netflix wants to do it, and they've optioned it, and that's that's where we're at. So that's how it kind of led to it. Led like Dinklage's involvement led to Matt Reeves, and that led to Josh Mond and Netflix and all that. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's in it's in the screenplay process right now. Um. Yeah, I don't know how much I can talk about it at this point. The yeah. um, like right now, there's no there's no new news that has not been announced, pretty much. So. Uh, without giving away any behind the scenes details, I'll just say they're, you know, it's trucking along. Awesome. Can't wait to see that. Thanks, man. I'm, I'm super stoked. Everyone involved that I know of is just, you know, amazing. A, like you said, it's a world that lends itself to cinema. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to spend, you know, 75 minutes in this world, you know, 75 more minutes in this world. Cause it's a great world to be in. Thanks That's, man. It's really, it's really intriguing. I'm I'm blessed with ideas that are not super expensive to to shoot. <laughs> like it's not if it was Planet Hulk, it'd be harder. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I think uh, I think that's pretty much all the questions we had. I, I would like to give you an opportunity to uh, to cover anything or, or bring anything up uh, before before we sign up. Uh, do you have any any last bits of advice for anybody who uh, is looking to to make comics, write comics, or or break or uh, break in. I know you talked a lot about uh, your experience, and I think that lends lends uh, a lot of good advice. But do you do you have anything else? Uh, let's see. I would I would encourage any um, aspiring creators to embrace the shitty first draft. Mm, okay. To me, that's huge. Um, when I was when I was trying to help my brother get his foot in the door, we met this like a, a teacher. Um, who was imparting wisdom to, to my brother, um, super talented artist. I mean, he just does amazing work. And he said uh, he also writes his own work, and he has this idea for this crazy, huge epic that he tried to, he tried to sum it up to us what it's about, and he kind of couldn't. Like, he just, um, it's just too big. It's like this massive thing. It sounded kind of inspired by Dragon Ball Z, kind of. Okay. Um, it was about this this child coming of age that became this great hero and just kept going and going. Like it's just this taking this hero throughout his entire life. Like one of these enormous manga epics, you know, that never ends. Um, and at some point I think one of us asked if we could see any of the art from it and he didn't really have any, like he, he had, he said that he had a few pages. Um, he obviously thought like he put a lot of thought in the story and he regarded it as being like a finished complete idea and story, but it doesn't exist in any kind of real way. And, um, and he said that when he finished, by the time he finishes the first issue, he will have grown so much that he'll probably just go back and start over and, and just do the first issue again. Um, and to me, that guy is a cautionary tale that will never leave my brain. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's um, a super talented guy, more talented than, so many people that are already like working in comics that's never going to work in comics because he's, he doesn't, he's never made one. He's never made one. You know, he's got like a few pages of stuff. And even if he has by now finished it and if he has actually gone through what he said and, and gone back to redo it and all that, um, and he's just trapped in this Mobius strip of a comic that he'll never escape from. Like you have to write, you have to write the bad ones before you can get to the okay ones and then the good ones. Um, if you're not getting the crappy stories out of the way, that's all you'll ever have. And it's, it's really important to produce a lot of work. 
um, to produce, to, to finish, to start a story and to finish it, even if it sucks. And after it's made, not to do with this guy's, I think what I said about us, like just doing the same story, being trapped in the same story forever, but do revise it and make it better mm-hmm. and revise it again, revise it again until you love it. I mean, I'm talking as a writer now. Yeah. Revise it until it's still really happy with it and then move on and make the next one and do the same thing. And just, if you, if you don't finish it, one, there's nothing to revise. You can't revise something that doesn't, that's not finished yet. So you're trapped until it's done. And two, you're not getting your crappy ones out of the way. And so you'll never make your good ones. It's important to make the bad ones so you can make the okay ones and good ones and hopefully one day the great ones. So I would just say embrace the crappy first draft and make sure you finish it so that you can, you know, make the better one. That's good advice. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a little bit of that uh, 10,000 hours and the uh, – right. Uh, there's also an artist who uh, he has a saying. He's uh, Jake Parker. It's uh, done, not perfect. Oh, yeah. Yes, um, totally. And uh, like, because I was working with an artist on a book, and I would give him notes on the page that we we were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was in another country, so he would work on it. And I would wake up, and the page that he sent me, he had gone back to like six panels, like three or four pages before. And I was like, dude, we were working on this page. I'm like, <laughs> that page is done. He's like, but I can make that panel better. I'm like, no, that page is done. We're, we're, we're working on that. So that I really, I really like uh, your advice there. Well, thanks. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's super important. I mean, you guys are creators too. I'm sure you understand all this, all this stuff too. Well, it's really encouraging to know because like we all have stories that we want to tell, but we all get hung up on like, this is too crappy. That kind of thing, you know, like once you yeah. much, but yeah. as long as it's as long as it's crappy and finished, you can always make it better. Exactly. Exactly. I I always think about Michael Mann, like, you know, he made Heat first as a TV movie in like nineteen eighty eight or something like that. And then like Whoa, I didn't know that. He made it. So like Dude, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I always think about that. I'm like, okay, I can always remake this story. Yeah. So Totally. All right. Yeah. Well, I'd like to uh, I'd like to thank you for being on and being on the interview. It was uh, very exciting for us, and it was an honor to have you on. As you can tell, we're we're big fans of of your comics. Um, Noah, I'm gonna let you uh, finish up with uh, yeah. any final thoughts that you have. I'm a big fan of all your work. Um, yeah, and uh, love to have you on again and talk about Aquaman and uh, Dark Crystal and Kong and your your Marvel stuff, everything. Like you know, but like tonight, I think it was good to just hone in on the originals. Um, what's, what's, what do you have coming up? Like what's in, what's in stores that people should look for? Um, let's see last, let's see what, what are they today? Um, a week or two ago, uh, dog days of summer came out from DC comics. It's an anthology, like a, it's a summer anthology themed on animals actually, which is really kind of a creative thing that they did. And, uh, they let me do an animal man story. I'm a huge wow. animal man fan, love Grant Morrison, but also the Lemire run. Like, yeah, really moved me a lot. I love that story. Um, so getting a chance to do an animal man short was really fun. Um, so that's out right now. I, I don't have a lot of stuff out in the next few months and then there's going to be a ton of stuff out for me all, kind of all at once in the fall. Um, I'm, I've got a, a lot of things in the, in the hopper right now that sadly have not been announced yet. I can't talk about, but I'm just dying to talk about it. So as soon as it's announced, I'd love to come back and talk again. Oh, we'd love that. Um, yeah. also working on a, working on a kid's book with a, friend of mine the the colorist from smoketown smoketown's a book from scout comics um that's in trade now and um his name is dustin mollock and he's a very talented illustrator uh, he and i are doing a, a kid's book called the moon dragon that we're that is actively underway and that's my first time doing a kid's book it's a story for my son about my son kind of Aww. and um just a story I kind of improvised in our, in our, you know, bedtime stories that has kind of become eventually over time kind of became codified and like became a solid thing that I wanted to write down and, and, uh, you know, make a, you know, have illustrated. Very cool. Um, do you want to, um, let anybody know where the best place to, to find you online is so that as these new projects come up and more news comes up, they, they, they can follow you. Yeah, sure. Well, you can check out my website, philipkennedyjohnson.com, two L's and Philip. I'm also on Facebook under my full name, Instagram under philip underscore Kennedy underscore Johnson. I'm on Twitter at, at Philip K. Johnson. Just look me up on my full name. You'll find me in most places. 
Very cool. Very cool. And we will we'll make sure to link those in the uh, the show notes to, to this podcast. Yeah, I also tour a lot with the Army Field Band, so look up, you know, keep up with us if you want to hang out and catch up somewhere and nerd out about stuff. Dude, I love that. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thanks again, and that's 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 going to do it for for this interview. Um, I'd like to uh, thank everybody for for joining us, and if you could go on to iTunes and give us a rate and and review, would really appreciate it. And uh, Philip, thank you uh, so much uh, for for being on, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, to more of your work coming out. Awesome, guys! Thanks so much.